welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. All right, everybody, welcome back. We're uh, we're actually going to pick up with uh, a continuation on the previous podcast because I've got uh, a whitetail ninja uh, mega guru Bill Winky with us, and we've we've talked about some really cool subjects, uh, but we've also got a few here that we've kind of outlined that I think we should keep going on. Um, I really wanted to talk before uh, about you know, the different model bows that are available kind of within the same category and how people should should look at picking a bow that fits them right. Because I don't know about you, Bill, but I constantly get asked by people, you know, hey, should I shoot the turbo? You know, I think that's probably the highest question I get is, do you think I should shoot the new Hoyt turbo or should I, you know, pick this one? I think everyone's debating that, that, uh, that speed question. But I'm kind of curious how you respond to that and and also what you feel people should consider when they're looking at, you know, a regular Hoyt Nitrum or a 34 or a turbo model. Okay, the, uh, uh, I tend to be, my actual background, I don't know if you even knew this, John, but I actually have a mechanical engineering uh, background. So you know, a lot of stuff I look at, I try to be, I'll try to look at the physics rather than just the emotion or even the advertising campaigns that you see in the magazines or on the TV shows. Um, try to look past that stuff and figure out from a stability standpoint or from a, uh, a f- physics or geometry standpoint what actually makes sense. And uh, the, the, the whole question is um, a lot of it has to do with there's two things there. Uh, one is the brace height of the bow. And as you get the bow, the brace height lower and lower, the arrow stays on the string longer. And there's some other things with the geometry of the bow that changes too, but let's just keep it simple and just say the arrow is attached to the bow longer. So if you are, um, and, and brace height, for those who aren't familiar with that term, it's the distance between the back of the grip and the string. So if you start bringing that string closer and closer to the grip, it's going to be it's going to take the arrow longer from the time you release it until it's off contact with the string. What it does on the upside is that longer brace height allows you to store more energy in the bow when you draw it, so then when you release it, you're dumping more energy, so you're going to get a faster arrow. So that's the trade-off there. The question is, is the bow with the lower brace height less forgiving? And that's been always the, the standard kind of conventional wisdom on uh, bow design. And the reason that that has come along, in addition to the geometry of the bow, which which makes the shorter brace out, let's just forget that. But the the think of it in terms of the old flintlock uh, muzzle loaders, and the guy would pull the trigger, the hammer would drop, the spark would start, it would go through the little pan, it would go inside the barrel, and then the you know the powder in the barrel would ignite, and then it would send the bullet down the barrel. Well, it's like you know click fizz boom. That's a lot of time you've got to hold that gun steady um, before the bullet leaves the barrel. It's called I think they call it lock time uh, yep. with guns, and that's kind of the same argument that people have thrown out there before on, on having a higher brace height versus a lower brace height is you've got a, a less of a lock time. Uh, the arrow is attached for less time with a high brace height. So the things that you do to influence it, 
you know, in your hand, if you're snapping your grip closed, you know, as you trigger the release, which a lot of people do. Um, there's a lot of inconsistencies in shooting form uh, that, you know, if, if somebody's really schooled, uh, a great archer, uh, it's going to be different from the, the average person who just grabs a bow and shoots it a few times and they go deer hunting. Um, they're going to have more inconsistencies. And those inconsistencies tend to arise at the time while the arrow is moving forward. So the less time that the arrow has on the string, you know, potentially the more accurate it's going to be because it's going to be, in theory, uh, it's going to, the arrow is going to hit closer to where the pin was when you triggered the release or you know, let the finger go or let the string go with your fingers. So that, that's the theory. So then what, is really, what really works in, in, in the actual world of deer hunting, uh, oh, brother. I mean, then you get into all kinds of different other dynamics. You know, arrow speed, you know, did you misjudge the distance, you know, uh, maybe the, the faster arrow compensated for the fact that you, you know, thought the deer was 25 when he was 30, and now you still killed him, or you made a cleaner kill, or whatever it might be. Maybe the arrow speed bought you a little bit of, of uh, forgiveness after the arrow left the bow. Uh, the other question is, how good is your shooting form? And the other thing that's that's been thrown out, and I got this from uh, uh, Blake Shelby at PSE, was the fact that the lock time doesn't really change that much because the string's moving faster. <laughs> so, you know, here we were 20 years ago, you know, comparing apples to apples because all the bows were fairly slow. And now we're looking at it saying, well, I was shooting a 7-inch brace-high bow. I need to keep shooting a 7-inch brace-high bow. And what Blake is saying is, you know, a 6-inch brace-high bow, even though the arrow is attached to the string longer because the arrow is, or the string is moving faster, it's the same amount of total time um, as, as what it was before with the higher brace-high so there's a lot of different arguments on it. I still I'm still conservative, and I'll still go with the with the brace heights, you know, six and a half inches or or more. I mean, that's sort of my sense. So I'm not a turbo guy to answer that question. Um, so that's that's the long-winded answer on on you know the the brace height trade-off um, on the axle to axle length trade-off. Again, you're looking at splitting some hairs now, because <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at stability. It's related to two things. It's related to the length, you know, or the distance away from the point of torque, uh, and the and the weight. And that's you know they call it the mass moment of inertia. Um, so if you can figure out exactly how you're moving a bow, whether you're tipping it to the side or whether you're just twisting it, turning it, you know, the further the distance is that you move the mass away from that point of of pivot, the more stable the bow becomes. So you know a long stabilizer you know, which the target people, you know, live by is going to make the bow more stable because the turning action of the bow is going to be reduced. It's like saying if you take a, uh, um, say, a rolling pin that weighs two pounds or a five-foot-long fence post that weighs two pounds, which one can you whip around quicker? Obviously, yep. the rolling pin is a lot easier to whip around because it's short. It doesn't yep. have that big, long moment of inertia. So that applies... Or the stabilizer sticking out the front, but what about the vertical, the, you know, the vertical axis of the bow? The longer the bow, the more stable it should then be to twisting or side to side turning. You know, not the canting. Not, yeah, canting. But not as many people. I don't. I don't know. You, you probably have a better feel for this than I do. But not as many people. I don't think deal with the canting action during the shot. You know, so the canting stability doesn't seem as critical to me as the pivoting or the torquing stability of the bow. Um, so, you know, anyway, the science suggests that the longer bow should be more stable, just purely from that standpoint, but I'm not sure from a practical sense if it, if it actually works its way out, because I'm not sure that that's 
the, the direction that we tweak the bow when we shoot it. Um, I still like a longer bow. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say I'm still conservative, and, and uh, you know, I'd shoot a 36-inch bow if there were 36-inch bows, and, and uh, I'd be proud to do it because it's not like carrying a bow that weighs a half a pound more is going to kill me. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to have the stability, just to, you know, even if it's just the weight of the bow, you know, or, or at least the extra length. Uh, I'll take the stability anywhere I can get it. Uh, so that's that's again a long answer to a fairly simple question, and I'm sure you've got a lot of thoughts on this stuff too, which I'd be curious to know. Yeah. So, well, I guess one what the th- there's a there's always variables when it comes to when people say what's forgiving in a bow. I always I always take kind of all the complicated stuff out and just tell people plain and simple. One, you know, forgiveness is forgiveness. I believe you can be, can be found in the brace height. You know, the longer the arrows on the string, the longer you have time to make mistakes. Um, I think for shorter draw people that are say 28 and a half and shorter, I personally think typically with those types of draw length shooters, they're also going to be a little bit shorter in statue. So, they can get away with that bow and it might even be, you know, maybe tailored a little better for them because they're going to have the ability to shoot more speed. Um, but they're also not going to be drawing the bow back to a length like us, which would then bring in the second factor of accuracy, in my opinion, in that string angle. You know, I believe that once you start to drastically sharpen your string angle, what makes what takes away from the accuracy for me is the fact that there's really two things that are going to happen. One, if you have a really sharp string angle on your bow at full draw, then in order for you to keep your head straight and look through your peep sight correctly, you almost have to, to get that bow to where it comes back further on your face, which then is going to increase your opportunity for any type of facial contact, which I think is one of the leading causes to inaccuracy is 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 you know contact on the face um the other thing is you know if you look at a gun that's really accurate the front sight and the rear sight are further apart you know and that's you look at a target archer that shoots a sight that's out further away from the bow it it gives them the ability to really um almost micro aim you know you're looking through your peep your sight's further out there. It's just like a gun that has a rear sight that's at the back of the barrel, and then if it has a really long barrel and the sight's at the front, you know, it it might be a little bit more awkward to get everything lined up. But if you, if you can, you've kind of almost put a microscope on your aiming and, and your accuracy. You know, it can be argued that you can almost be a little bit more accurate with those two sight reference points further away from one another. When you shoot a really sharp string angle bow what i don't like about it is that the further my peep sight gets away from my eye the the less accurate i feel like i am and i think that's for a couple reasons one you start to really shorten that distance between you know your sight one and your sight two more or less but also if you shoot a peep that's really far from your eye you have to shoot a really big peep in order for it to still be that size you know to where you can kind of center everything properly so i think a lot of factors come in i know that um you know one time i actually took when the matthews came out with the the lx 
that was like a bow that was, you know, under a seven inch brace height. And, you know, a lot of dealers were arguing that, you know, you can't have a 35 inch axle axle bow shoot accurate. You know, this was back when everyone wanted 38s and 39 inch hunting bows, whereas the target guys were still way over 40. And I actually took that to um, the NFA Nationals and I shot uh, uh, an inside out clean five spot round with my Matthews LX. It was actually the best round I ever shot in the NFA. Um, so, I mean, I kind of took that away, I guess, when it came to accuracy that, you know, a bow under 38 inches can't be accurate. They certainly can. Now, I really think that archers should stick with a bow that allows them to have a favorable string angle at their draw length. You know, Bill and I, we could certainly squeeze behind a 30-inch axle-to-axle bow. Well, Bill probably could, and I can. But I have found um, it seems a lot less torquey and a lot more, I guess, you know, forgiving in my hand to have a slightly bigger bow to where, you know, when I might adjust my grip a little bit at full draw, it doesn't feel like I'm twisting the whole bow around. Um, but I think if you're a shorter statue person and maybe even the people that are shorter in draw length that have to shoot a little bit less poundage, you know, those turbos can, uh, be an advantage, but for the most part, if you don't want to shoot, um, a bow that, you know, can be argued to be a little bit less forgiving because the other part of forgiveness for me is I really find a lot of forgiveness in cam feel. You know, a lot of people aren't looking at what the cams feel like on, you know, when they're saying, well, should I choose bow A or should I choose bow B? Well, bow A might have um, a very uh, solid wall, but it also might have a different draw cycle to where it's easier to pull. And it also has a longer valley to where you feel a lot easier and more comfortable pulling that bow back to full draw. Whereas a lot of times any bow that has speed is going to come uh, with a more aggressive feel and many times a, a much shorter valley and a and a you know a lot more demanding rear wall. Which if you're not a person that is capable of controlling that, then the bow ultimately comes becomes unforgiving just because of the back that you, the fact that you can't keep that bow, you know all the way back at full draw for, you know, for an ample amount of time. Uh, and you don't, you know, or you, you don't have the problem of, you know, possibly creeping, which I think, you know, some, some people that try to shoot these more aggressive cams, uh, run into, I guess one thing that, that you talked about, Bill, that I'm kind of curious if you've tested, um, have you tested on your hunting bow, um, the actual, uh, cycle time for your bow from from release click to clearing the string have you have you have you checked that in in no. thousands of a seconds uh-uh, i'm uh, not okay well one thing and i have so on for my particular most of my setups um a shot cycle for me is about 18 thousandths of a second from cl- you know the literally the click of the release to the arrow clearing the string and what's really fascinating about that is that with a lot of the cams that are on the market today that, you know, are, are pretty, uh, they have a slightly higher let off, you know, 75 or 80% let off. Um, with the cams that are, that are on my particular bow, that 18 thousandths of a second 
um, thirteen thousandths of the eighteen thousandths, the string is still never it's still never cleared my face. Yeah. <laughs> so you yeah. know, a lot of people don't really factor in, you know, with your speed bow, if it really dumps off and and just kind of is almost super super easy, almost too easy to hold at full draw. When that clicks, it takes time and, you know, up to three quarters of that cycle time for those cams to just completely ramp up to where you're actually getting into that that power band of the curve to where then it's projecting that arrow forward. So, you know, having a bow that has that longer brace height, like what Bill was saying, if you do make a mistake in my opinion, the majority of the mistakes happen within the first two to three inches of your face, you know, whether it's your release hand, your follow through direction, contact of your face, you know, a lot of bow hunters, um, which actually we might even talk about this in a minute, bow hunters that kind of, uh, have an incorrect anchor position. They put the arrow in a position on their face where they're, where they're very likely to cause a misdirection arrow flight right right away before the arrow even starts going forward um the longer that arrow is on that string then the more problems that that could cause so having it come off off the string earlier can be important and and this actually relates to another question um, that i'm asked a lot by people they say should i back my limbs you know is it okay to back my limbs out 10 pounds or should i order a bow that's more um, that's exactly what I want to shoot for weight. And my question is, you know, and well, a lot of people say, does it affect, does my bow not become accurate? And it doesn't really affect the accuracy, but what it does affect is the string tension. So the lighter your string tension, the more it also starts to show some of those, those errors that you can potentially make. So you know, I really like to have a system to where you are shooting the limbs almost maxed out um, and also yeah. shooting a system that is more suitable for your statue um, and also a favorable brace height. I think for a hunter, you know, I really know that, you know, when it comes late season here, I can't shoot a six-inch bow, you know, a brace height right. bow. I just don't think I could do it, you know, when I'm as bulked up as I am. But, you know, I think all those things are factors that people need to to factor in when they're choosing their models. Well, I think that, you know, that question about the, you know, should I shoot the bow bottomed or off bottom? And uh, I worked at a bow company um, for, for not a real long time, but for a while. And I was in the engineering department at first, and then I was out in the manufacturing end. And uh, the uh, the guy that was there, kind of the senior engineer, uh, he said that they designed their bows, the four-straw curve, to be optimized or to be at its best um, when the limbs were almost bottomed because that's where the, the system performed best. So you could take, let's say if you're going to shoot 50 pounds and you want to shoot either a, 50, either a bow that maxes at 50 or a 60-pound bow backed off to 50, you're going to get a faster arrow delivery and, and a cleaner shot, You know, if you want to call it from the efficiency standpoint, with the 50-pound bow maxed at 50 and not the 60-pound bow backed off. Um, yep. And you're going to get, you're, yeah, they're both 50 pounds, but they're two different, completely different animals because of what you're talking about with the tension on the, on the strings and the, or the string and the harnesses. So 
Um, there's a that's an interesting point, and I think there's a lot of people that ask that question because I get that question quite a bit too. So, ideally, you shoot the bow as close to the draw weight that you want to shoot at, bottomed. Um, or, or do you shoot on bottom or just off? Does it matter to you? Um, it doesn't really matter to me. I normally, I mean, I normally, uh, to be honest, the only times, the only time I really change my bow just a little bit is, you know, one thing that I struggle with is that at my draw length, and because I like to shoot, you know, I like to shoot a lot of FOC, so I shoot a heavier brass insert in my arrows. A lot of times I just can't find an arrow that's stiff enough to really work with, say, you know, a 50 grain brass insert and a 100 grain broadhead. You know, a lot of times I end up having to reduce my, my pulling weight a little bit just to really get my bow to group as well as I want it to simply because I'm kind of maxed out for how stiff a spine the market's really offering right now in some of the arrow categories that I want. So a lot of times I might have to shoot 67 pounds in order to make a 300 uh, spine arrow to work, you know, or sometimes like in the, for example, in this 260 spine, I'm having to shoot, you know, under 80 pounds, uh, just to be able to keep that one to shoot. So it varies a little bit. If I do adjust it, it's not really from a performance aspect more so right. than just really trying to match my bow to the arrow that I'm, that I'm shooting at the time. And I think the limb selections are so well, um, coordinated, you know, between the stiffness of the top and bottom limbs that, you know, back in the day, I mean, bows were pretty crappy when we first started. Oh yeah. You know, I, yeah. I mean, you had to adjust everything. I mean, they call it tiller, you know, and that's the, di- the distance from the riser to the string for the, you know, at the top, you know, where the limb, top limb joins the riser. And then also at the bottom where the bottom limb joins the riser, you measure it out to the string and they should be, you know, fairly close to equal and people have all different kinds of formulas for what they should be. But a lot of times the limbs weren't matched up. No. You had to they... do all kinds of crazy stuff to get the, 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 you know, you might take a, a turn off the bottom and, and, you know, leave the top bottomed or whatever it might be in order to get the correct tiller. But, uh, Nowadays, you can just crank them. You should just be able to crank them down and, and be fine. Oh, yeah. All those are, you know, well, actually, what's cool about Hoyt, and this is pretty unique because I can tell you from other companies I've been in, this is not the case. You know, when Hoyt builds limbs, and you can even, a lot of times, you can even tell if you take your Hoyt limbs off, you can kind of line them all up together and you can almost line them up to where the camo fully matches. You know, hmm. where, and what that's showing you is, you know, when they build limbs, they'll build them in a, you know, they'll, they'll have a plate, a whole plate of glass and your limbs are cut out of that plate. And then those limbs are put onto a fixture and then they're dipped, you know, or, well, then they're, they're actually planed. They're checked with a digital machine that actually checks, you know, very, I mean, it's so, it's so precise we could never know, but it f- digitally flexes them and lets you know, okay, those limbs are still all within their spec. And then, and then those limbs are literally pressed into a like a four limb stack and then they're dipped so you know and even on the Hoyt recurve limbs the limbs that are made they're they're literally made as a as a set and they stay together so that's actually pretty cool but yeah i mean back in the day you know one limb could actually be you know a pound and a half different than the other the other limb that you have but i think as consumers we're definitely out of that market altogether you know now you can almost be certain that you're going to be able to um back your limbs out evenly and have a bow that's you know 
almost tiller tuned way more precise than you would ever be able to measure it um but i think one thing that we can talk about too um since you brought up you know how engineers design you know the bows for efficiency at that position the same goes for you know cams a lot of cams you know like hoyt has um there might be a number one, number two, or number three cam, and each cam does have modules that allows you to adjust it, you know, um, from, you know, a two and a half inch uh, spectrum forward or back or a two inch spectrum. But what I can tell you is if you go to a rack and there's a bow that has like the larger number three cam on it and you need to shoot it, say, at the shortest position, I will say that on most bows, if you order a bow to where you're shooting in that longest position, you're going to have a bow that's more efficient speed-wise than picking the larger cam and having to shoot it down in the shorter position. You know, I don't, I don't know if you've ever uh, see like uh, Harry. He's at the point now where he shoots at a draw length to where either he can choose a number one cam and be at the longest position, which means I don't have any option for him to grow anymore and be able to adjust the module, or I can pick the next size bigger cam, but he's at the bottom of that spectrum. And, and for me, I choose the smaller cam in the longest slot because I know, you know, especially at a shorter draw length person, you know, those feet per second matter. So, you know, I found that the, the cams that allow you to be in the longest module position offer the best efficiency. Well, and there's no doubt that modular cams, no matter how well they're designed, that they're not, the bow isn't going to perform perfectly. I shouldn't say perfectly. It's not going to perform as efficiently at every single module setting. And and we could get into all kinds of, of, you know, uh, uh, comparisons, but yeah. you're right. I mean, for every cam and every range of modules, there's going to be one, one that where the engineer stuff. actually built it at. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and the rest of it are the rest of them are trade offs, and they're not big trade offs, but they exist. And and there was a time when uh, I think maybe maybe it was even Matthews, they created a separate cam for every half inch draw length. There oh, were yeah. no modules. None for years. Yeah, yeah, for years yeah, you had was, to buy the cam. Yeah, and it was it was they did that because it was optimized for that exact draw length. And, but the downside is you've got so little flexibility in, in what you do with that bow, and if you ever want to sell it, you're selling it to somebody with exactly the same draw length as you. Right. You, know, you don't have that flexibility to say, well, this one will make a 31-inch draw or a 30-inch draw. Or if you have a growing kid or something, you know, it makes, yeah. it, it, makes it tough. Yeah, um, but there are trade-offs, there are, and, and it's not a big deal. It's not something that people should worry about. Um, you know, we're splitting hairs again, but it, it does exist. Well, let's, um, let's maybe... So you shoot the you shoot the thirty four inch models like for the Nitrum or the Carbon mm-hmm. Spider ZT then. Yep. I shoot the thirty fours as well, but I think guy the average guy that you know I think gets up to about that thirty inch draw length. The shorter ones could could still or are still uh, extremely accurate and favorable. Um, and I think for the guy, you know, what I tell people if they're under that twenty eight and a half inch mark. The turbos definitely op- uh, offer an advantage to them because of that higher rate of speed. But you also need to make sure um, that you prefer that type of cam feel. And sometimes I've known guys that are you know in that twenty nine inch draw range that just says that say well, I don't like how high the let off is. You know I don't like a bow where I don't really feel like 
you know, I feel like I can just let go of it at full draw and nothing will happen. You know, some people like a demanding cam. And if you do, then a turbo model is, is perfect for you. I mean, I think that's what's nice as consumers is you're able to choose a model that allows you to really pick specific things that you like. So, you know, that's what I wanted to point out today is, you know, the the things that are the positives for each of those models out there. And, you know, you've you've been with Hoyt twice as long as I have, Bill, you know. Um, I've been there, you know, this next year will be 10 years for me that I've been with the guys there. And one thing that I'll say that I really have enjoyed is all of the people in the engineering department, they're all very high-level target archers, and they're also super, super high-level and passionate bow hunters. So they really design things. They continually try to push the envelope, um, and they offer a huge range of, of options. Most bow companies do not let you customize like Hoyt does. And, and that's because, you know, I can guarantee you, you look in that engineering department, there might be 10 guys. All 10 of them are shooting something different. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've been out there and, and met with the guys. In fact, I did uh, last spring, I think. And the thing that was interesting to me was uh, they were, you, you didn't get that, um, you know, that, that maybe the classic, I won't call it nerd, I suppose, but the, the person who maybe is just there because they're good at CAD drawings, um, but not necessarily because they cared about the end product that much. It was just a job. It seemed like all of them were there because they loved bow hunting, is what it seemed like to me. And because and, the questions that I got from the guys weren't, you know, it was like uh, a, a pack of people asking hunting questions, <laughs> you know, or, or talking hunting. It wasn't uh, somebody who was, you know, um, maybe their their eyes were wandering around looking for something more interesting to talk about or, or something else. Maybe they're thinking about what they're going to eat for lunch that day. They were all engaged, um, and that, that did surprise me, I guess, because most companies uh, aren't set up like that. A lot of times you can't find that many people who are that passionate and are still qualified. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Well, one thing that we just kind of touched on there quick was, you know, about kind of, about Harry and kind of what I choose for his setup. And, you know, you and I both have uh, kids that are at a really fun age right now. And, you know, I think we should maybe talk a little bit about, about, you know, one, the importance of getting your family involved with, with hunting. You know, I know that I actually hunt a lot more as an individual because Sharon and Harry are involved than if I would have just made this all about what I want to do. You know, and if I would have, if, if this was a hundred percent, just my hobby, you know, um, there's no better feeling for me than, you know, when little dud comes home and says, can we go out and, you know, can we go get in a, in a stand tonight or get in a blind tonight? Because, uh, you know, for me, I'm totally willing to push everything I've got going aside to be able to, to get out and enjoy that moment with him what's what's your feelings on you know i guess on that same subject and also what people should should do to make sure they're getting their their kids and their families involved yeah the the main thing for me you know because i've had people say gosh you know you're you know you're so committed to your family or whatever it might be you know and really it's it's more of a selfish thing um than it is 
you know, some big sacrifice. I don't want to miss anything. And I used to travel a ton, which I'm sure that you did too, uh, early in my in my career in the, in the hunting industry when I was just riding and shooting photos. I'd be gone a lot, and now I don't travel at all. I mean, I only hunt at home, and uh, the reason I do that is I don't want to miss anything. So for me, even though there's the whole bigger picture of passing on the tradition and all that, I just want to spend time with them. And, uh, you know, as long as they still want to do something with me, I'm way more than happy to, to accommodate because I know the day's going to come when they're they're going to be gone uh, and, and I'm not going to be able to get those days back again. So, you know, I look at it like, <clears throat> you know, if I can spend five hours or three hours or whatever it is in a blind um, with our son or daughter, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. You know, we're going to have fun. I'm going to get a chance to be a parent and I'm going to have a chance to be a friend. But more than that, I get a chance to soak up being around them more. Um, so that's kind of the selfish side of it. So I, I wouldn't give up any of it. I mean, and, and I would really, you know, I guess uh, encourage any parents out there that, that are kind of torn between their own agenda and taking their kids out that, uh, you know, throw away your own agenda for a while uh, because you're going to enjoy that quality time that you spend with, with the kids a lot more than that, that time that you spend alone. Yeah. That's my take on it for sure. Well, and I, I actually would like to throw a challenge out there. Um, you know, I know there's people that are just like me who every single year, you know, they make sure that they, you know, go out and get a brand new bow and, you know, tax rebate times coming up. And I know from a bow company, you know, being internal at a bow company, a big spike in sales is always tax return season. A lot of people rely on that check and, you know, sometimes, especially with a lot of the adult bows, the checks definitely aren't big enough now sometimes to, to pay for one of those. But one thing that I would like to challenge people to do is maybe maybe select, maybe it's not this year, but maybe it could be, select a time where you actually, instead of investing in your own stuff, invest in getting your kids set up 100% the right way for them because that really does make all the difference in their ability to truly enjoy shooting is having equipment that fits them right and the other equipment that supports their bow that's actually matched for it because you know if you want to go out and get your kid a brand new bow but then you're not willing to you know then you want to give them the the six different arrows that you have uh, that you've got left over from your past four seasons you know I don't see how in the world you'd ever think that they would have fun if every shot their arrows hit in a different place so you know if if you haven't done it then i guess i would just like you to really look at what you're doing and if you know that your kids got an interest in doing it get them set up the right way and i think that if you allow them to to see how accurate they are at it and and feel like let them feel like they're actually good at something uh, which they will be if they're fit up correctly. Um, I think you're going to be really surprised at how much they actually want to start doing it without you having to to kind of force them into it. Yeah, I think so. And 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 uh, again, the equipment you bring it up, and I'll just throw a really quick one out there. Um, there's a lot of really nice stuff out there that's not super expensive for for young archers. Um, so it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. I mean, obviously you can spend adult bow money on a on a bow for your for your kid if the draw length is long enough, but you don't have to uh, because there's there's some really nice stuff out there that'll do a, a really good job for you uh, that 
that's going to be a fraction of, of what it costs to get an adult sort of geared up with the state-of-the-art stuff. So uh, there's there's no good reason not to do it unless the kids just absolutely have no interest or, or you know don't want to be outdoors uh, because the lessons and the opportunity that you have to spend uh, with them and, and uh, you know, some of the things that, that you can do as a parent, you know, the, the subjects you can talk about sitting in a blind or in a tree stand, it's way different than what you get a chance to talk about when you're driving to and from school or even sitting around the dinner table. Um, so it's uh, it's cool stuff. Uh, but, in, you know, you touched on something, too, and this is, this is a question that, that I wanted to catch up with you on, um, and that is sizing a, a bow draw lengthwise uh, to fit somebody. Does that fit into your agenda for the for the? Oh, yeah, yeah, we can, we can certainly talk about it because one, one thing that I was kind of wanting to talk about was maybe if we ever, t- if we touched on some subjects that were kind of common mistakes uh, that mm, the average yeah. Joe makes, and, and I think we've touched on several of those, um, you know, bow selection being one of them, but the one that I had really had in mind was, you know, the importance of draw length, because I think when I look at, you know, at, well, what's funny is where I see the most people shooting their bows nowadays is every day I go on and there's, you know, friend requests on Facebook. So a lot of times I kind of go through and I'm wanting to make sure that if I do have room to add people, because I'm kind of limited, you know, now as people fall out, then I add people in, but you know, I want to make sure that they're archers. So a lot of times when I'm looking through, I'm like kind of looking at like critiquing people as I'm looking at their Facebook profiles and overdrawing is a, a, a very, very common thing that people make. And earlier you and I were talking about, you know, the facial pressure and how that affects your shot. One of the biggest mistakes that I see a lot of bow hunters make is really trying to get in that habit of putting their thumb behind their neck because they want to kind of lock in that anchor point. And what that does, I mean, it's not that it's bad that you have a consistent anchor point, but what happens when a lot of people try to find that position is they end up anchoring low. So what they do is they bring that arrow position down directly more in line with their chin bone rather than being kind of between the chin bone and your your lips, more in that what I call the safe zone of the face where your face is more cradled out to give you better clearance. You know, when they try to overdraw and they have their their kind of thumb hooked at the base of their neck, you know, one, the string is, is, there's probably six or seven inches of string along the side of your face. And then you also put, you know, three to four inches of arrow shaft along your chin too. So having a draw length that's fit, you know, set correctly, in my opinion, uh, is one that the bow comes to a rest at or slightly behind the corner of the mouth. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I I think that's a good one. If you want to take a look at uh, purely the geometry, and and again, I, I tend to be maybe too analytical sometimes. I have to tone it down and uh, get away from it. But um, the best, if you, if you can get somebody to look down at you from above or even from straight behind you, if your forearm from your elbow right through the release aid is in line with the arrow, uh, you're probably in pretty good shape. And where I started getting into trouble myself was and why I had to drop my draw length about a half an inch was my elbow, my draw side elbow, 
started getting behind me slightly. Yep. And what it was doing then, you, know, you think, well, that's no big deal. Who cares? Well, <laughs> and it took me a long time to figure it out, but I kept getting left and right arrow tears through yep. paper, and I couldn't get rid of them. No matter what I did, it drove me nuts. Finally, I realized that I was putting side pressure on the string with my release aid because I wasn't pulling straight back through the string. So when I pulled the trigger, I was actually plucking the string inward, you know, which causes a reaction, you know, a side-to-side reaction of the string as it's going forward. Right. And that was giving me these arrow tears I couldn't get rid of. So all I did is drop my draw length a little bit, and those tears went away because my elbow was pulling straight behind me then. You were overextended. Yeah, I was pulling it in. I was dropping it in, you know, too far around behind, you know, so it was almost, you know, coming back too far. And, and, uh, and that puts side pressure, just a little bit of side pressure on the string. So it's, it's sometimes it's some crazy stuff that you don't think about uh, that, that comes back and haunts you when your draw length is too long. And it was, you know, I felt like I was probably okay accuracy-wise. I just couldn't get rid of the paper tear. And I, I, you know, I talked to the guys at Hoyt and I said, did you change the riser on this bow? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I just find some excuse, you know, why I couldn't get it to tune. You know, like, what did you guys do to this? Yep. And then I finally realized that, you know, after a whole bunch of, of soul searching that I was just pulling the bow back too far and, and putting side pressure on the string. Yeah, you're, uh, you're overdrawn. So ultimately when you shot, the only place for your hand to go was down and away from your face. Yeah. You know, you all, you kind of come come down in a way because you can't really truly follow through back which you know when you when you're set up correctly and you really want to focus on proper follow through which i think is a key essential um to shooting consistently not because you know a lot of times a follow through people say well the arrow is gone well it is gone but in the same sense when when you're pulling and if you activate a release from a pulling motion the initial direction of your pull is what creates the directional path of that string. So even though your follow through by the time you fully followed through that arrow is long gone, it's the initial direction of that elbow or that hand that creates that string path. So, you know, if you're able to have yourself in a position to where, you know, at full draw, your elbow is at about, you know, 11 or 12 o'clock and you're continually trying to pull it to where you're trying to pull it towards the one or two o'clock motion. When that release fires, you know, I focus on contracting my bicep, which allows that elbow to come around to two and, you know, you know, two thirty on the clock. But it also allows my release hand to come over the top of my shoulder. And a correct follow through, you know, if you're contracting your bicep, your release hand will come over the top of your shoulder rather than come out away from your face. You know, a lot of people back when we shot fingers, you could watch a guy that was like a, a string plucker and you'd be like, oh man, you're really plucking the string because it was no real noticeable with fingers. But with the release, it's not, it's harder to pick up because everything happens so fast. But it it's the same exact thing. You know, it's exactly the same. And, and what the bow does, and I don't know if you've played around with this, I'm sure that you have because you've done a lot more shooting than I have, but the bow, uh, the follow-through tells you what the bow was starting to do while the arrow was still on the string. Yep. So I always want my bow to jump straight forward and, and not turn, um, you know, on the follow-through. Yep. And, and again, maybe there's some, some something I'm doing that's, that you can disagree with because I, I don't claim to be a world-class archer. But I want my bow to jump straight forward and then tip towards the target and not have any tendency for the bow to rotate and point to the left. And that's where my problem was. 
you know, I would shoot, and then the bow would be pointing a little bit to the left on my follow-through, and I thought, what the heck? You know, why is it doing this? And that's where I came up with the whole thing about my draw length, you know, because once I get the draw length straightened out, then my bow would jump straight towards the target and then tip forward, and it didn't have that tendency to turn in my hand. So the fact that it turned in my hand after the arrow was gone, that's an indication of what it was starting to do while the arrow was still on the string. Um, and that's where the arrow flight problems came in, and I'm sure some accuracy problems too. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. You can tell when your how your bow turns, uh, kind of whatever type of hand pressure you've you know if you've put any type of initial front hand torque on the bow. Obviously, that bow is starting to kick in whatever direction that is, you know, right away. Which you know, again, if you're shooting a bow that's got a shorter brace height, where that strength, that bow, you know, especially if you have a longer draw where that arrow's staying on that bow for a long time. You, there's a lot of things that can end up becoming a negative factor to that. You know, what I teach people is to really focus on the importance of taking photos of yourself at full draw. A photo of yourself, you know, like if you can shoot and have someone stand up on like a, a deck or something above you and take a, a photo of you from up above, um, like what Bill was saying, that's a great way. And actually... Um, I know that on my on my website there's an article that I did that I know is on there um, that's relative to proper follow through. If you can um, look on either DudleyArchery.info or the TV.com, look in the articles and look for that um, look for that that article on proper follow through. There's actually over the head frame by frame shots of showing exactly what Bill and I are talking about, um, and I think that's one good way to know if you're overdrawn but also when you look at yourself on a broad broadside picture if your rear elbow is below your shoulder it's also an indication or if you see yourself your your shoulders are behind your hips in other words you're kind of leaning back or cocked back um you know those things right there are, are indicators that you're you're drawing too long or if you know like i said if your thumb's way behind your neck for your anchor or if when you look at a picture of yourself the string is actually more on the side of your nose coming down the side of your face and coming to a stop you know if it's further than an inch behind the corner of your lips then there's a a strong uh possibility that you're actually overdrawn and can be affecting your accuracy and i i think too um that if you if you have to turn your head away from square in order to make up that difference, uh, that's another indication. So if you're not looking straight forward at the target when you're when you're at full draw, when you're actually looking out of the corners of your eye, um, you know out of the corners of your eyes, then that tells me that you've had to turn your head in order to make up for that that difference in the draw length. Um, so that's another thing I look at with people too is if they're if they're turning their head hard. Um, in order to, you know, make it longer. Um, have you seen that in, in typical form? Oh, yeah. And the one thing that some people do, especially people that are actually trying to shoot, like, back tension or a tension-activated release, what you'll find is if they are overextended and they're really trying to get that release to fire by pulling, when you're out of pulling room, essentially you can't get it to happen. So what a lot of people do is... Because they're trying to pull and they know that they need to pull that release and rotate the release, what you can see in slow motion footage is that they actually start to do what you're talking about. They start to turn their head. 
and they start to like use their head to try to keep pulling that motion back to where you know at one second they might be looking straight at the target but then by the end of the frame they're almost looking off you know their nose is almost pointed off to like two o'clock because they're try they're so overextended they're trying to make up for that by either leaning their head back or turning their head back so again all that's like definite indicators um, and I'm sure if you look through uh, either some of Bill's uh, articles and things or my articles, there's certainly going to be plenty on uh, having the right draw length. And, uh, you know, that's what I think two of the most important things the average guy can do is make sure that you, at least if you're the one of the first, you know, if you're new to it, make sure that you have a reputable archery shop or very reputable archer give you a true draw length measurement and also make sure that you're pulling uh, a pulling weight that you can lift your bow arm straight up and point it at the target and draw your release hand back to your face if you're having to to raise your bow up above your shoulders or cock your hips or lean back in order to draw your bow then you're drawing too much weight and those are two uh, two things in themselves that can really um, decrease your accuracy um, before you've even thought about even pulling your trigger. It's just, it's it's literally troubleshooting. For me, when I look at archers, you know, I'm troubleshooting what they do on the initial draw that's going to set up something that's going to be an error later on in the shot. And, you know, draw length and, and improper draw weight are probably on the highest of the list. Yeah, and I think the the biggest problem with the draw weight is is uh, you know obviously people want to shoot a heavy weight because they get more arrow speed or they get greater penetration or whatever it might be, or maybe they just want to keep up with their buddy. Um, or in my case, they don't want to admit that they're getting older, <laughs> so they tend to <laughs> hold on to what the weight they used to shoot when they were a kid. But um, the, uh, the 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 thing that happens is you lose your ability to relax that full draw. But you fought so hard. And you've created tension on the way back that when you get settled in and you're pulling back a little bit against the valley or whatever, you've got this uneasiness because you know that you're, you've got this caged beast that you, you're just a little bit afraid of. Um, so I think that's the, the biggest part is, is once you get it to full draw um, with a draw weight that you can handle you know, a lot easier, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable and you're going to feel like I'm in control of this bow. You know, It's not in control of me. I'm yep. in control of it. And, and so it just makes you a little bit more at ease. You can relax a little bit more. And as you know, the, the relaxed muscle isn't going to move around very much when you're aiming. Um, when you throw tension into the equation, I mean, you got like a, a, a lightning rod where every little impulse in the muscles of your body is going to reflect itself in that pin jumping around. Yep. Um, so that's, uh, that's my thing on draw weight. And, and you can build draw weight. You know, you, you, you don't have to be satisfied with what you're shooting if you want to shoot more. Um, and there's lots of stuff you can do to get stronger. Yeah, it so. takes commitment to it. It takes you know if if you're not happy with what you're the weight that you're hunting at, then it might be an indicator that that you're only a hunter and you're not an archer. You know, people that that shoot archery year round, they they really have no problem pulling the types of weights that are out there. It's when you want to just grab your bow, you know, September fifteenth and and practice for a few weeks before the October 1st, uh, deer hunt, that's when you're going to have problems. You know, if, if you focus on, you know, trying to be a year, a year round archer, then you can build up to really whatever you want to shoot. 
Yeah, for sure. And, and even in the gym, you know, a lot of people are into fitness now, and there's certain exercises that you can do. Yep. Oh, that, yeah. Uh, really, that really build up that ability to draw a bow. And, and you know, I don't know the names of all of them. I do them, but I think one is like the bent bent over row or something like that where you hold the weight and you, know, you bend over and you pull it up to your, you know, up to your face or up to your shoulder. Um, you know, I do that one every day or every day I'm in there. Um, but, you know, just stuff like that just helps you to, to maintain the, the kind of strength that you need in order to be able to relax fully. And that's kind of what we're getting at here is it's not about, um, you know, can you handle it? You know, it's, it's can you handle it and still be able to relax fully? Uh, so, Anyway, uh, that's that's good. What else you got? Well, <laughs> I think the last thing I want to talk about, and I meant to kind of chime in while we were talking about the kids, was, um, you know, one thing that I found really made um, kind of the cool factor a little higher was, you know, I really started focusing on um, hunting with, with actually with Sharon and Little Dud. I, we really start hunting mainly out of blinds because it, it gives us the ability to, you know, to maybe – to turn and look at one another and talk and, and, you know, be able to, to have a lot more freedom in, in movement. Um, and also like with little dud, it gives me the ability if he, you know, if he comes home from school and says, Hey, I really want to go hunting, you know, do you have homework? Yeah. We'll throw that, throw your book in the backpack. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot of times where we've been hunting where, you know, I've had to tell him to close his book and, you know, put his book away because there's a deer coming, you know, and he's actually in the middle of doing some homework too. It just, it kind of really broadens uh, your ability. And, you know, I know for me, I I moved to Iowa for the exact reason, you know, like you said, there was times in our lives where we did a tremendous amount of traveling. Um, But there also comes a time where when your kids get to a certain age, you need to set that stuff aside to be able to enjoy um, a pretty small window of opportunity with your with your kids and I know that here in Iowa you know I get I get a lot more um, options for tags than in other states and it allows uh, you know me Sharon and Harry to have you know I think seven buck tags between the three of us you know and and uh, you know six turkey tags in the in the springtime so I don't have to travel as much, but I know that also, um, you know, we, we started using bail blinds, um, five years ago and they completely changed our way of hunting. And then, you know, this past year I got some of the, the big green fiberglass redneck blinds and, uh, for the late season and, and warmth and comfort and comfort, um, they've completely changed the game again altogether. So I don't know how much you're utilizing those, but I thought I would kind of throw that out there as well. Yeah, the only time that I hunt uh, in the tree with the kids is early, uh, during the youth season and maybe a little bit in October. Uh, I shouldn't say a little bit, any time in October, first part of November. Once it starts to get cold, um, you know, we're in the we're in the redneck blind. And, and the main thing there... Uh, I mean, again, I've talked about me getting older, and and I do like being comfortable too, but more important than that is they need to be having fun. And neither one of them are hardcore hunters. You know, if if I say, well, you know, hunting is suffering. If you're not suffering, you're not hunting, which is kind of how I grew up. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just part of it. But you had to have a really bleeding passion for it in order to endure what we had to endure, you know, just to kill something. And we would go weeks of freezing and, and, you know, frostbite and end up shooting something, these guys aren't going to do that. 
Uh, my kids aren't. You know, there are probably some kids out there that w- would do that, but I'm going to lose them really fast if I think that that hunting is suffering. Um, so from that standpoint, I want them to be comfortable. You know, and if they get bored, I want them to have an outlet. Um, and, and again, you can say whatever you want to. You know, you're raising spoiled kids. I don't care. I'm in the blind with my kid. That's what matters. Yeah, you know, I don't care yeah. if anybody else thinks I'm raising a spoiled kid. It doesn't matter. I'm in the blind with my kid, and we're enjoying hunting together. And whatever it takes to do that, um, that's what I'm committed to because, like you say, that window is, is closing, um, and, and I don't want to look back at it and say, well, that was stupid. You know, yeah, I mean, maybe I made the kid a little bit tougher, but I also ruined any opportunity that I had of, of you know, spending a lot of time with them. Um, yeah. So, that's it. I mean, it's warm. Uh, we have the LP heater going, and, uh, you know, Drew's got his iPad or, you know, something like that. And if it starts to get boring and nothing's coming out, you know, he'll pull up, a, you know, some video he's got or he'll, you know, whatever. He'll do something that, that, that keeps him occupied, and, and uh, he doesn't have to stare out the window at nothing. Uh, I have enough passion. I'll do that for weeks and months, and, and you do too. Oh, yeah. But our two kids don't. Um, so that's uh, that's the other thing I'd say is I'd caution people is to keep in mind that this has to be fun for them, and in order to be fun, it typically has to be comfortable. Um, and that's where those blinds are so great. And I can throw a really plug in on that, on those uh, um, the green rednecks, and, and that's the fact that they're really bow hunter friendly. Um, I've been in a lot of blinds that weren't, but uh, we've killed a lot of deer out of those things. And, and on filmed hunts even, where you've got two people in there, um, the biggest difference is just the ability to cover everything with a minimal number of windows open. Oh yeah, yeah. As soon it, as you got that corner, you got that corner window open. You've got about forty degrees of coverage out there. You know, oh just yeah. By pivoting around inside the blind, and you got a little, you know, six inch wide or whatever it is window vertical, you can shoot out to as far or shoot as close as you, as you need to on about a forty degree angle. And uh, heck, I, I use that corner window for shooting out of most of the time. I remember actually. Um... You know, I'm I'm kind of a I'm always a, a skeptic on things when it comes to really anything scent control, a new type of call, or what I mean. Because in reality, I'm I'm normally trying to hunt three, maybe four different deer on my place, and I know that their ability to tolerate a gimmick is pretty much zero. So. Um, you know, there's a lot of products and I know you're the same that I could certainly take someone's money to endorse, but there's no way because I would never do it. And actually I was a skeptic of these, of the green blinds because I thought, well, I know I'll see deer out of one, but I don't think I'm going to, uh, shoot a mature deer out of a big blind like that. But I ended up getting one simply because, uh, there's certain times of the year where it's just so cold. And then also there's certain parts of my place um, and it's actually the same part, you know, one it's, I only can hunt it late season, but it's also in an area where, where the, the wind sometimes can have a, a, a marginal change towards dark and it's made, you know, hunting there really, really difficult. So, you know, I also wanted the ability to try to contain scent a lot better. And, uh, I will say like, it, like I said, first night, um, I had literally the, the number one buck that I thought I wanted to shoot. And then a buck that I hadn't seen in almost two years, uh, come out. And I mean, I had incredible late season hunting out of my, my green blind. So I was, I was, um, you know, I actually sent an email to those guys and told them, you know, I take my, 
I take my words back, I was skeptical on the green blinds. I had always loved the bale blinds because deer never really paid attention to them. But, uh, and I think I even texted you a few times and said, tell me the truth. Am I wasting my time? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the thing we could do part three on, on just talking about blinds versus tree stands, because I've learned so much and it's not necessarily what everybody wants to hear. Um, the, the, the blinds create a really unique opportunity and, and, yeah, the, the video that we produce out of them is not as pretty as the video that we produce, you know, 25 feet up in a tree, you know, with the big panoramas and stuff like that. But what we do is we get away with murder. Um, yep. And you can sit on a spot day after day after day, and even in the late season when the deer are ultra edgy, um, you're in that blind, and if you've got the windows closed and there's daylight, they don't see in that blind. All they see is the reflection of the light yep. you know, because it's a window. You know, think about it. You know, if you're inside of a dark room and it's bright outside and you look at the window, you're not seeing in that house. All you're seeing is a reflection of what's outside. Um, obviously, as the day goes on and you have to open the window in order to get ready to shoot or whatever the case may be, you, know, you, you open up an opportunity there where maybe they can see you. But you can just sit in there. It's almost like you're cheating. Um, I mean, you just get to see everything, and the deer don't know you're there. They're walking around five feet away. Um, you, know, you, you can move around in there a little bit. We used to do the same exact thing from tree stands on the edge of food plots as what we're doing in blinds now. We always got picked off. I mean, you, you, oh, re- yeah. you reach up, you got a little drip of snot on the end of your nose and you're tired of it, and you reach your hand up six inches to brush it off with your fingertip and some doe sees it, and now the field's cleared. Yeah, um, and the problem is you're not dealing with two or three deer. Right. You know, you're dealing with like, you know, I know on my place, you know, I try to really concentrate my deer to really have, you know, two options for late season food to where I can hunt one with, with, you know, half of the winds and another one with the other half of the winds. And I'm constantly flipping back and forth. You know, if you, if you screw that up, you're literally could be flushing half of your local deer out, you know, if you're really concentrating deer. So, you know, when you have 50 or 60 deer in a, in a field, and most of them are does and fawns, who are edgy anyway you know you just you can't get away get away with that stuff so you know i've i've certainly found a lot of use for it and i know back in the day um as a bow hunter i i didn't ever really want to 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 hunt out of blinds because deer were really skeptical of some blinds back in the day but now if you build a permanent fixture um you know, maybe maybe more towards the summertime, you and I can talk. We can do a podcast specific to blinds. Um, but certainly with Harry and Sharon, us being able to, you know, to be able to turn and talk to one another and look at one another and, and you know, kind of have a, have a little bit of interaction without worrying about screwing up a spot sure has made uh, hunting a lot more enjoyable than you know, like you said, I'm, I grew up down in Mississippi. So when I was, when I was way younger than Harry, I remember, you know, if I wanted to go hunting, they would just drop you off at your stand and then they'd say, well, stay here till we're back. (laughs) I, I could, I mean, and I think about, you know, I think about mornings when I was 10 years old, sitting in a, in a dang tree down in, down in a Mississippi swamp, some of the noises that I heard come out of that swamp before the sun <laughs> came up, I can guarantee a little dud would not 
ever go again if he heard some of those things. <laughs> What's that movie about Bigfoot? Or that movie, that series, is it look, Hunting Bigfoot or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think a yeah. swamp ape sounds exactly <laughs> like all the things that I heard down in Mississippi. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. The, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a place for, for blinds, and, and it's a good subject for us to get into at some point because, you know, it's one that we kicked around a lot. Uh, and there's there's obviously great opportunities for tree stand hunting, which we've documented over the years. But there's a place in every strategy for blinds now. And uh, I never would have said that five or six years ago. But the more time I spend in them, the more I realize that wherever you've got that little fickle wind or you've got yep. a situation where, you know, you just can't get away with a normal hunt, the blind will work there. And the other thing, just real quick, if you remember what it was like from, say, November 10th to maybe the 25th or something uh, this this season, we had, like, 10-degree temperatures and 25-mile-an-hour winds just about every day, it seemed like. Very heavy wind winds, were, yeah. Oh, the wind, the wind chills were way below zero, and I had friends that were in trees, and literally they'd be in there for an hour and a half in the morning and an hour and a half in the evening, and that was it. And and I just went to the blind, you know, and I have a few of them on the farm scattered around, and I was hunting, you know, eight eight nine hours a day, and they were hunting three hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes a huge difference because you just can't gut it out, no matter how tough you are. If you're just frozen to the bone, um, you just can't stay in there. Uh, you know, it's just it's no fun whatsoever, and it starts to get even dangerous at some point. You know, cause you still got to climb down out of the tree, you know, and now you're all stiff. And oh, so anyway, yeah. the, the the blinds had a real nice application in those conditions because I was able to hunt a lot more than I would have. Uh, I would have been out there every day, but I would have been out there for less less number of hours yeah we need to we actually need to schedule this in the summer when our schedules slow down a little bit i think we should almost do one on on blinds and uh maybe talk about you know not just those situations but also presentation and because honestly like a lot of my blind setups i actually a lot of them um and these two where i had the green blinds they were mainly 100% 100% held off. I never even never even stepped a foot in one until the day of late season opener. And I mean, I I did battle out most of that whole November. I hardly ever, you know, cuz I at least on my place, I'm a I'm a deep timber, you know, I'm I'm a thicket hunter during the rut. I mean, I am I I really love thickets um or travel corridors and I think, you know, I think if we start getting into our thoughts, we'll we've got another you know, we're both not going to end up uh, getting to go to the bathroom here. So, um, I guess before we before we seal this one up, um, is there anything that you'd like to uh, to let anyone know in relation to Midwest Whitetail? You've got a great thing going there, and congrats on on actually winning the only award where you know I don't actually partake in in a lot of the awards um, because I just. One, I don't have the time to rally people towards voting, but you know, if there was an award that I would want to win from a TV aspect, it would be most educational. And and you um, you won that last year, so my hats off to you for that, and and uh, congrats on it. And is there anything particular that you want any of the Knock On podcast people to to know about? Well, uh, thanks. I appreciate that, and that's really a, a team win for our guys because they've all sort of embraced this whole concept of educating and that's kind of our niche. Um, you know, I don't have the big personality where I can get away with just being fun, you know, so we've got to bring something of value to the, 
you know, to the show, and, and that's what we've elected to do is really focus on trying to help people become better bow hunters. So it was just kind of a real nice uh, uh, justification, if you want to call it that, or, or a reward for the for the team that worked so hard on it. Um, but we are getting now. Um, we do the website, and we have we have the episodes that air on the website, which are as close to live as we can get them. That's the MidwestWhitetail.com site, and then we have the TV show on the Sportsman Channel. And we're getting real close now to kicking off our uh, uh, 2015 off-season series on the website. And that's, you know, we get into shed hunting. Um, we get into talking about shooting a bow, you know, showing people some of the stuff that you and I have talked about in these last two podcasts. Um, we get into a lot of uh, land management and deer management themes. Uh, we talk about anything that has to do with bow hunting whitetails or, or you know, even just bow hunting in general, but focus really on whitetails that we don't have time to cover during the season because we're so covered up with hunts. We talk strategies, you know, maybe why one stand is better than another and, you know, that sort of stuff. Anyway, that starts, the off-season series starts uh, next Monday. So today is the 17th, right? I, I know, whatever. No <laughs> so whenever it airs, <laughs> it's going to start on the 23rd of February is when the, the 2015 off-season series is going to start rolling. So uh, cool. if people want to, you know, pop into MidwestWhiteTail.com, they... We bring them up every Monday morning um, until into June, and then we, we knock off for a couple of months, and we start in uh, you know the later part of July, uh, no, the later part of August. I'm sorry, and then we run right through the hunting season with you know more in-season stuff. So uh, that's the only plug I guess I'd, I'd throw out there. We, uh, we we do enjoy the off-season topics because we have a lot more flexibility. And You've freedom. got time, not, yeah. Yeah, that's, we're not tied in. Yeah, we don't have these three hunts that we got to talk about, or this hunt. I mean, hunts are awesome. I love you know seeing big deer go down, but sometimes I think people get bored with that because they see it all the time. Uh, what we do during the off season is really dive into strategy more and and some of the behind the scenes type of stuff that that maybe you know people wouldn't see as often. Uh, so for me, it's it's almost more fun because I get to be more creative. Yeah, so, and actually the the podcast is exactly that for me. Um, is you know, we're able to, to talk about a subject and, and not limit it to within a four and a half minute slot, you know, and, and you're able to, to get off track and, and have the time to, to, you know, follow that pathway until it runs out. So, um, certainly appreciate everything. And if you ever, if you ever wanted, you know, if you ever need any help on the, on the shooting aspect side, you know, I'm not too far away. We can just, uh, we can definitely meet up and, and uh, I'll always help you however I can. But uh, yeah, no, thanks, I thanks so it. much, Bill. I know that um, you're someone who I've always just really liked talking with. You know, behind the behind the scenes at different shows and different events where that we're at. And um, you know, you've always been someone that I can relate to and that I can openly talk about things that sometimes I question myself on. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun, and, and uh, you know, if there's anything I can do to help you out, um, you know, in the future, just let me know. I mean, we're we're not really competitors, and even if we were competitors, it wouldn't matter. Uh, I'd still be happy to help you, so uh, <laughs> just keep me in mind. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to a, a really uh, unexpected, long-winded uh, series of podcasts <laughs> from myself and Bill, and hope you certainly enjoyed them. And uh, thanks again, Bill. I appreciate everything. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank uh, you. All right, see you, everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com